1: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Revelation.
2: We should be anxious for nothing, but in all things, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make our requests known to God, and the peace of God. That transcends all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. You know, this is the hope of the church. Our hope is in the Lord, our peace is from the Lord. The salvation, the honor, the glory, the power belongs to the Lord our God. And so he's in control, and we need to just trust him. And verse 2 says, For true and righteous are his judgments. Notice that. Today,
1: Pastor Gary will be encouraging you to have faith in the Lord and to not allow yourself to grow anxious or fearful even in the darkest of times. God is sovereign and is all-powerful. He knows the beginning to the end. When you obey the Lord and stay within the boundaries that He sets, you don't need to worry about self-inflicted wounds of sin, but you're still living in this world. Jesus himself said that in this life you will have troubles. But be of cheer, I have overcome the world. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Revelation chapter 19 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
2: So he writes here, we're going to go verse by verse, verse one, he says, after these things, the Greek there is made a tauta, and he's referring to the things related to chapter 17 and 18 that had to do with this harlot, or some translations say prostitute, or this whore. Chapter 17 was about the religious system that is coming upon the earth, this one world religion. Chapter 18 was about this one economic system, this one political system. And and so John says, after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. So heaven is occupied during this tribulation period. This is where the saints are being kept uh, safely. And, and he hears... Sounds of rejoicing. Now, what we're going to find here in chapter 19 are sounds of rejoicing. In fact, the next word there in verse 1 is Alleluia. And you're going to see that word repeated four times in the first 10 verses. There's rejoicing in heaven. There's rejoicing in heaven because the time of God's justice and judgment has come. There's a time of vindication that is coming upon the earth. So the sound in heaven is rejoicing praise God, hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Glory and honor and power are God's, and whatever is distributed to man is only a temporary earthly power, but the salvation and the honor and the glory and the power belongs to the Lord our God. Amen. He's in charge. He's on the throne. He is sovereign. And especially during these days, man, we just need to be reminded of that. You know, the world is getting a little nuts, and I have a feeling this week it's going to get even nuttier. And yet we have to hold on to the Lord and not allow our fears to take over our hearts. That we should be anxious for nothing, but in all things, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make our requests known to God, and the peace of God. That transcends all understanding. We'll guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. You know, this is the hope of the church. Our hope is in the Lord. Our peace is from the Lord. The salvation, the honor, the glory, the power belongs to the Lord our God, and so He's in control. And we need to just trust Him. And verse two says, "For true and righteous are His judgments." Notice that. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. So God will bring to bear justice where there is justice needed, and truth where there is truth needed, and he will avenge and vindicate. And again, you know, they are rejoicing in heaven because there has been, you know, justice a long time coming. This is why it says there that his For true and righteous are his judgments. I'm going to read from Psalm 73. You don't need to turn there. But but in, in Psalm 73, the psalmist also wrestled with this whole idea of why is so much evil allowed to happen on the earth? And it seems as almost as if God is oblivious to it. Well, he's not oblivious to it. And he's going to bring justice in his time. And in Psalm 73, the psalmist wrestled with this. Listen to this. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace, violence covers them like a garment, their eyes bulge with abundance, they have more than heart could wish." They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. So the psalmist is saying, you know, I get disciplined by God. All the while, it seems like sinful people have it easy and they get by with stuff and they prosper even at that. And then he adds, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. And then he adds, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their end. And so sometimes we have to have this eternal perspective. And what we're reading in chapter 19 of Revelation is this eternal reality, the perspective of which is that there are things on the earth that are going to happen that are ugly and evil and sinful and unjust and terrible, but God is going to reckon, there's going to be a day of reckoning for all of this. And so when we go into the house of the Lord and we get that eternal perspective, when we remember, okay, our hope is in the Lord and heaven is our home and we're only citizens, you know, passing through because our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And so we have to fix our minds on this and we have to get our focus on the Lord because there is going to be a day when God will deal with all of this. But in the meantime, we have to live among it. We have to endure it. We have to trust the Lord and we have to just rely on Him. And so, in Revelation 19 here, is it true and righteous are your judgments, Lord, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Now, this is a reference you can flip back if you'd like to chapter 6 of Revelation. Uh, In Revelation 6, verses 9 and 10, when John was writing about the the seals being opened, one of the things that he saw in the fifth seal, it's Revelation 6 verses 9 and 10, He says, when he opened, that is Jesus, when Jesus opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. See, those who accept Christ during the tribulation period will be martyred. They will be killed for their faith. The souls of those saints are crying out, Lord, how long are you going to wait until you avenge our blood for what was done against us? Well, it's now happening here in chapter 19. This is what John sees happening in the future. And that's why he ends verse two saying, he that is the Lord has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. So here in Revelation 19, it's a fulfillment of the longing of the souls crying out there in Revelation chapter six. So back here in chapter 19, verse three, again, they said that is the saints in heaven, they're rejoicing. And they said, alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. So it's the ashes of of ancient Babylon, who uh, uh, the one world economic system and political system, now coming to an end. That was chapter 18. And so they're rejoicing that all of this, all the earthly, religious, political, economic systems have come to an end. And the saints are rejoicing now that the one true God, the one true Messiah, the one true King is now showing himself in terms of his power and his glory and his honor and salvation. He's avenging the blood of the saints. And the rest of verse three says, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne. Now the 24 elders are a representation of the rapture church in heaven. The four living creatures earlier in the book of Revelation are those angelic beings that attend to the Lord around the throne. They fall down. They worship God who sat on the throne saying, Amen. Here's the third time. Alleluia. Verse 5, Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. Verse 6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, "Hallelujah!" for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage. Notice this, the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife, or some translations say and his bride, has made herself ready. Now this is this is ancient language related to a Jewish wedding. We're going to talk about it in in the time we have remaining. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. This is all a picture of the bride, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. You know, when Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, he said, I desire to present you as a virgin holy and pure. To to the groom, the bride presented to the groom. Now, in biblical typology or language, the church, the New Testament church, is, is pictured in the Bible as a bride. And Jesus is the groom and he's coming again for this wedding banquet. This is what chapter 19 is about here, this great wedding banquet. The Lord is coming, and the bride has made herself ready, and she's, she's adorned herself in, in beautiful fine linen, which is a picture of the church in righteousness, having been forgiven of our sins through Christ. In verse 9, and then he, this is the angel, said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now remember, the word lamb is the most used title for Jesus in the book of Revelation. twenty. times. 28 times Jesus is referred to as the Lamb because He wants to be known as that redemptive Savior, the Lamb who gave His life for the sins of the world, the one who was slaughtered and shed His blood on our behalf for our sins. So there's this marriage reference here, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And again, verse 10, where He's so overwhelmed, he, He finds Himself falling down to worship this angel, but the angel corrects Him and says, see that you don't do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. Okay, not me, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I wanna to talk to you in the remaining uh, 15 minutes or so we have left about a Jewish wedding parallel because it'll help us to better understand chapter 19. So we have to kind of um, remove our Western mindset of what a wedding is like. And we need to go back centuries, um, and in some cases it's still preserved in Jewish weddings today, not entirely, but, but in, in some respects, to a New Testament wedding banquet because this is all the language that is being used here so that we understand what is actually going to happen when Christ returns again. So in order to first grasp the parallel, let's go back to some of the original ideas of weddings, Jewish weddings, back in New Testament times. A Jewish wedding was typically divided into three parts. The first was the betrothal period. Now, the betrothal period was a time uh, during which there was a contract agreed to by the two dads of the bride and the groom. Weddings back in that day were arranged marriages. And, uh, you know, the older I've gotten, the more in favor of arranged marriages I am. (laughs) All right. The whole dating thing, the whole that it's just messy. And, you know, people trying to, you know, make connections through Tinder, which is nothing but a bunch of hookups and all this kind of stuff and and dating apps and all. It just has become this wild time of just trying to figure out you know, be simpler, just dads arranging the marriages. All right. I'm kind of old school, Old Testament that way. I'm not really serious, but sort of. Um, but anyway, um, this is how it would work. Uh, one dad of the, of the groom would see another dad of, of a potential bride and, uh, and marriages would be arranged when the bride and the groom were as young as two years of age. You would just basically say, I got a two-year-old boy here. You have a two-year-old girl there. How about we decide that when they get of maritable age, that they are going to be husband and wife? And the two dads would shake on it, and there would be a dowry paid. It was like this contractual arrangement where a dowry would be paid, so the the father of the groom would pay the father of the bride in whatever form in the day. Cattle, sheep, silver, gold, whatever the bride price was agreed upon, that's the price that was paid. It was negotiable, and that's what would be paid. And then there was this contract, okay, so that there would be this arranged marriage Uh, they would get then to a a place of meritable age, which back in that day could be very young. You know, they they went like old West Virginia style and Kentucky style, just like we're going to, you know, 13, 14, 15. Let's just, uh, let's get them, let's get them hitched pretty young. And so they would be married off pretty young. Remember that Mary was probably 15 years of age. Joseph was probably a lot older, but you know, it wasn't uncommon in those days, uh, for even teenagers to then get to this age at which point the, the contract would become, um, engaged and there would be vows that would be exchanged. A lot of times, by the way, dowry that was paid was considered alimony in advance. If, there was, if, if the marriage ever went south and um, the woman was no longer married, uh, back in those days, it would be very hard for her to survive. So the dowry was paid in advance as a means to potentially support her in the event that there was a divorce. That's the betrothal period. And so a groom would go off, build an addition onto his father's house, and he, during that time, he would be gone from his wife for a period of one year. The Levitical law even provided that he would be exempt from military duty during that one year of the betrothal period. They were considered husband and wife, even though they had not yet consummated the marriage. Remember, Joseph and Mary, back to the Christmas story, when Jesus, you know, was uh, conceived of the Virgin Mary because it was gone in flesh, they were betrothed. The bride price had been exchanged, they had exchanged vows, and it was during this time that Joseph was basically preparing a place for them to live as husband and wife, but they were considered married. It, it had; to, it, They could only dissolve that marriage through divorce. Remember when Joseph thought that, that Mary had been unfaithful to him during that betrothal period, he had in mind, what does the Bible say? He had in mind to divorce her quietly. He didn't want to bring her to public disgrace, but he wanted to dissolve the marriage because he thought she'd been unfaithful until an angel revealed to Joseph that that which was conceived in her was of the Holy Spirit, and then he was enlightened, and then he took her to be his wife, but they had no union. There was to be no sexual intimacy during this betrothal period. He would go off, prepare a place for his bride, and then he would return. He would return for his uh, bride, and that was the second aspect. After a year, he would come back for his bride. Now, for those of you who are familiar with some different parables that Jesus taught, this is Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus teaches a parable of the ten virgins. Don't get hung up on their virginity. They are basically represent ten bridesmaids. They are part of a wedding party. And the the parable of the ten virgins went like this. There were ten bridesmaids whose responsibility it was to be watching for the return of the groom, that he was coming, that they knew a year later he was going to be coming, and he would come at midnight. And it was their responsibility in the dark, those bridesmaids, to take lanterns, out When they saw him coming at a distance, they would go out to meet the groom and then by their lanterns, they would illuminate the way back to the bride so that then the groom could come and receive his bride. In the parable in Matthew chapter 25, it tells us that of the 10 virgins, five had the oil ready in the lamp and the other 5 did didn't. Jesus uses the parable to talk about there will be those who are not ready for him when he comes again. There will be those who are not watching. They're not prepared. They are not ready. The five virgins, the five bridesmaids who don't have oil in their lamps turn to the five who do and say, can you give us some of your oil? And the other, and the five refuse. Why? You can't get to Jesus on borrowed faith. It has to be your own. He teaches this parable to talk about when he comes again. The third aspect then of a wedding was the wedding banquet itself. When the groom would return for his bride, he would take her then. The interesting thing is, they would hoist her up on this um, uh, banner and carry them, the wedding party, on their sh- carry her on their shoulders, lifting her up. This is all beautiful typology. I'll make the parallel connection in a moment. And take him, take the bride rather, to his father's house where there will be a banquet. A seven-day banquet. And there would be great celebration. And there would be, you know, this great participation of invited guests. Now, do you remember the first miracle of Jesus? John chapter 2, when he changed water into wine. That was at the wedding banquet of Cana. When people had gathered together to celebrate the wedding, the marriage of this bride and this groom. This was the time when the wedding was consummated. The bride and the groom would physically, sexually consummate their marriage. So it was in those three phases. There would be a betrothal, which is more than an engagement period, but it was this betrothal period where they were considered husband and wife, but no sexual union. Then the groom would go away. After a year, he would come back for his bride and then take her to his father's house where there would be guests invited. There would be this great feast. It would last for seven days. The couple would consummate their marriage, smash the glass under their foot, muzzle off. all right? That was a Jewish wedding feast and banquet and process. Here's the parallel. When we think about the betrothal period, this is what salvation is all about. Jesus paid the bride price with his blood, okay? He purchased us. He laid down his life, and with his blood, he paid a price for his bride, for us. That was the price that he paid. He's purchasing us. He loves us. He's entering into this covenant with us. And then the next thing that happens is the rapture of the church, where Jesus comes to receive his bride. Now, in John chapter 13 and 14, all of this is explained, and this is marital language. When Jesus says in John 14, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. It's all marital language. Just like a groom would go away to add an addition onto his Father's house and be absent for a time, Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us in his Father's house, and he's gone for a time. Is everybody getting this? We are living in the betrothal period right now. The church has been purchased by the blood of Christ. We've entered into this marital covenant arrangement, okay? But Christ has gone away. He's gone to prepare a place for us. Now listen to the rest of John 14. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you might be also. Right? So it's all this aspect of Jesus is coming again. We have to be ready. We are the wedding party now. We are the bride. We are to be looking and anticipating the return of the groom for the church. Don't be like the five foolish virgins who didn't have oil, who weren't ready. And so in the closing verses of what we just read here between verses 7 and 10, this is what it is describing. It is describing the day when we are finally with the Lord. And so we shall be with the Lord forever. Is in and you'll find The your connection
1: Run towards your new life That's all we have for today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to listen to this edition in Revelation again, or if you'd like to explore other messages from Pastor Gary through his Bible teachings, just visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc Or you can download our mobile app to stay connected to the truth of God's Word everywhere you go. It's a great way to have a quiet time anytime. You'll find a link on our website, along with more information about the church behind this ministry, Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. If you're in the area we'd love to meet you, come visit us. You'll find service times and more information about Cornerstone Chapel at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Is there anything happening in your life right now that we could be praying for? We'd be honored to do that for you. Or is there anything God's doing that deserves some rejoicing? Please let us know. We love that we can interact with our listeners. So send us a quick email and we'll get back to you soon. Prayer at CornerstoneChapel.net That's Prayer at CornerstoneChapel.net With that, our time with you has come to an end for today. Put a marker where we left off in this final book of the Bible and make plans to join Pastor Gary next time for more. Right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know But still you know You're not alone